0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February fifth, two thousand ten. I'm Elena Rangi. estimated that 1 in every 110 children in the U.S. are affected by Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. In recent years, scientists have seen a rise in the number of children diagnosed with autism, a result of either better screening by physicians or something else entirely. Exactly where autism comes from is largely still unknown. What scientists do know, however, is that there seems to be a strong genetic link to the disorder. Last month, Hunter College hosted a day-long symposium on autism, gathering scientists from around the country to talk about their research. It's pretty tough to talk about the field of ASD research because there's a lot going on. So this week, we're focusing on two researchers doing different autism research at Hunter College. One is looking at the synapses in our brain, and the other is studying how play can change the outcome of children with ASD. Let's face it, for a lot of us, winter means hibernation. Which, if you're anything like me, involves your couch, a woolly blanket, some pay-per-view, and some comfort food.
1: But get out of the house,
0: Science in the City fans! On February 16th, we've got the second event in our Girls' Night Out series. We're bringing you NYU's Marion Nessel, an expert in what we eat and why. She'll talk about the science of diets and nutrition and the politics of food. So instead of eating those potato chips on the sofa, you can learn about them instead. And you'll know they'll be there when you get home. Tickets are going fast, so get yours today online at www.nyas.org slash out.
2: I'm Jason Dichtenberg. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Hunter. I teach here and do research on brain function and molecular neurobiology.
0: Jason's lab is interested in synapses in the brain, and more specifically, how certain genetic mutations can cause problems in the development or functioning of synapses. Jason's interest in autism is actually a side effect of another project.
2: We got interested in autism because the main research that we work on, or at least one main area focused in the lab, is Fragile X syndrome. And Fragile X syndrome is the leading known genetic cause of autism currently. It accounts for approximately 3 to 6% of autism. And uh, that number is a little bit higher than what is estimated now, but um, it seems that a lot of the people or the parents who have children with Fragile X know that their kids have Fragile X, so they don't seek to participate maybe in other trials of autism and the genetics behind it because they already know it's a single-gene disorder.
0: The fact that Fragile X accounts for only 3-6% of all autism cases and is still considered the leading cause exemplifies the difficulties researchers face when it comes to studying the autism spectrum. It's widely believed that there isn't a single gene or mutation that causes autism, but rather a combination of factors coming together. This mixture of factors likely varies, which can explain the spectrum of symptoms linked to ASD, These range from mild symptoms to more developed Asperger's syndrome to autism, which in itself has varying degrees of severity as well. So Jason's team, in a way, is a step ahead of the game because they already know that a significant percentage of patients with Fragile X syndrome display autistic behavior. This lets them focus on a specific gene with a known connection to autism.
2: Fragile X is a single gene on the X chromosome, and it's known to cause mental retardation and behavioral disorders. And so one of the hallmarks of Fragile X, uh, there are uh, phenotypes uh, like a longer face or enlarged uh, sexual organs in the male, and there are other phenotypes associated with it, but generally it's known that it causes a a decrease in the IQ. So it's characterized as mental retardation. However, it's now known that about 30% of Fragile X patients display autistic behavior. And another 30% uh, are on the spectrum, the autism spectrum. That is, they have some characteristics uh, on the autism scale that's characterized by DSM-IV, the medical clinical diagnosis of autism. But they don't have all of the autistic features that are required to be Uh, counted as autism. So they have some, but not all. They're on the spectrum.
0: So it's possible that children with autism have genetic mutations similar to Fragile X, but different enough that they don't actually have Fragile X. Here's Jason explaining the Fragile X mutation. The
2: normal gene, actually, in in people who don't have Fragile X and are not carriers, actually you have a certain number of repeats of of nucleotides, and it's a CGG repeat, a a repeat of three nucleotides. And in most people, it's about 30. That's the average. It's somewhere between 20 and 40, I think. That's a normal form uh, of the gene. And at some point, and it's not clear why, there's an expansion. And people who already are pre-mutation carriers have an expanded above 40. They have actually probably above 80, somewhere between 80 and 150 repeats. Now, at of 60 to 80 seems to be a critical level to, to, to determine that, that they're sort of pre-mutation carriers and that that would expand further with further generation.
0: So Fragile X in two normal parents who happen to carry the pre-mutation of the gene, meaning that they have a few extra CGG repeats, will pass these mutations on to their children. These inherited repeats can spontaneously multiply and cause enough CGG repeats for Fragile X to occur in the child. When it comes to autism, Jason hypothesizes that this CGG nucleotide repeat is a factor in the disorder, but that most autistic children don't have a big enough mutation to cause the full effect of Fragile X, but rather, symptoms associated with ASD. Jason is interested in what happens in the brains of patients with Fragile X, and in turn, what happens in the brains of patients with autism. It turns out, the gene responsible for Fragile X is a synaptic gene
2: obviously genes control many functions in the cell and in neurons a major function is communication at the synapse the synapse is the fundamental unit of the brain it's the single unit where information is transferred from one cell to the next one neuron to the next and so a gene is synaptic if it if its product the protein of the gene is expressed at synapses that is the protein goes there and functions at synapses and you know scientists have long studied and are continuing to study the function of genes at synapses to determine which ones are for essential for different forms of learning and memory. The idea that synaptic genes are involved in autism is not so far away from what we expect because obviously the synapse and synaptic genes play a big role in behavior.
0: All genes code for proteins, and the Fragile X gene plays a special role when it comes to synapses.
2: We've been looking at Fragile X for some time. We discovered a couple years ago that the Fragile X protein, this RNA-binding protein, not only was it at the synapse, but it was also responsible for ferrying or shuttling RNAs to the synapse. Now, that may sound like a wild idea. Why is there RNA at the synapse? Because usually we think of the central dogma, DNA to RNA to protein, and a protein could function at the synapse. But it turns out, that, as I said again, many years ago, physiologists realized that protein synthesis was important at the synapse, and that means that RNAs are expressed individually at synapses, and the idea, the model is that the synapse, being an input from one cell onto the receiving cell, is an autonomous body. That is, there are hundreds or thousands of synapses on one cell. All these different connections come from potentially different neurons. So in order for a neuron to integrate its synaptic input or threshold or ability to be activated, it has to independently gauge or independently control the synaptic input. These synapses are either strengthened or weakened based on their inputs. And so there is a complex cascade or or integration of these synapses based on on their activity and the history of their activity. But what's important in learning memory is that these synapses either strengthen or weaken independently.
0: And basically, in the brains of patients with Fragile X, these synapses aren't functioning like they should be. Synapses and neurons are plastic parts of our brains. Synapses are constantly growing and retreating. The ones that retreat and disappear are the ones we no longer need, or they're the weaker synapses. The ones that grow and stay are the stronger connections and play a bigger role in helping us think, act, remember, or process information. One significant finding Jason's team has discovered by studying a fragile X model in mice is that the fragile X mutation causes too many weak synapses to stay, instead of retreating and disappearing like they normally would. Jason compares it to an unpruned grapevine. There end up being way too many grapes, and none of them taste very good or are very useful. When it comes to autism, Jason hopes that scientists who study the behavioral effects of autism can help identify which specific regions of the brain are most affected by the disorder. Then, he hopes that they can look for similar synapse patterns in autism-specific regions.
2: The newest technology in the future, if if we wanted to look 50 years ahead, what what would we see? We'd see, in humans, maybe we can image at this level that I'm imaging... Uh, the synapses on, which is a you know, nanometer level, in the brains of, of patients using a new imaging technology for awake patients that has no you know, invasive side effects. So they can image it and really see that the behavioral interventions and maybe the right behavioral interventions, some ones that they test, could be the key ones for re- rewiring the circuits.
0: A few floors down from Jason's office, and almost directly beneath his lab, is the lab of Michael Siller.
1: Uh, my name is Michael Siddler and I'm assistant professor in the psychology department here at Hunter College. I research uh, children with autism. I'm interested in how they change over time and especially what parents can do to help them acquire social skills and language and to enhance their development.
0: So when it comes to the behavioral work that Jason was talking about, Michael and his lab studied just that.
1: I got interested in autism because right after high school, I worked in an orphanage for children with special needs. And I worked with a seven-year-old with autism who I found very intriguing and very mysterious. And I liked hanging out with him and playing and learning what he's about and what makes him tick. That was in the early 90s, which was a very different time, in part because it's Europe, in part because it was a while ago. But this boy... He actually was physically, so he was six at the time I met him, but he had spent, prior to that, a year in a psychiatric clinic as a three-year-old, and the parents were recommended to put him in an institution. Um, because it was felt at the time that they were not capable of taking care of him, not necessarily but because they lacked skills, but that was part of the time where essentially still parents were blamed for the children's problems, for autism. And in many cases, the decision was made to put them in institutions, which is very different from how we think about it today.
0: Today, parents are left largely to fend for themselves and encouraged to face the challenges of raising an autistic child head-on. Michael is interested in helping parents to play with their children in a constructive way, and one that will ultimately, hopefully, change the child's brain development for the better.
1: One of the deficits that we've been very interested in is we call the joint attention deficit, which means... The typical developing kids, from very early on, when they're interested in things, they try to share their interest with other people. They go to the zoo and point things out to their parents. And at the same time also, when their parent shows them things, they're curious about it and want to look what the parent is showing them. Kids with autism have a deficit there. And that's concerning, not just because it's an important behavior, because, but also because it, it interferes with learning. If you cannot coordinate your attention with another person, you can't learn language, and you can't learn a lot of other skills also. So my research has really been how children with autism coordinate their attention with other people and what parents can do to help them do a better job.
0: Some of Michael's earlier research looked at the different ways parents interacted with their children and the different language skills each interaction type tended to produce.
1: We know that children with autism may not necessarily look where the parent is pointing. So I started looking at, well, how attentive are parents to what the children are looking at? Because we know for typical developing babies, that's what parents do before the kids can respond to them. They follow their children's lead. So in in longitudinal studies, it turned out that parents who did this to a, a higher degree which means they talked about things that the child was looking at, they described what the child was doing or trying to do. Parents who did that more had children who developed more language, and we saw this both in the short term over the course of a few years, but we also saw it in the long picture by the time the children were adolescents. So early play play interaction between parents and the children predicted how children developed language over time, and it wasn't that, that parents... Whatever language they showed were able to norm- make their children's language normal. That, that didn't happen. But the, it, it helped them acquire language at a little bit an increased rate than they would have otherwise. So parental language did not override children's biology, but it gave them a little bit of a benefit that seemed clinical worthwhile to me.
0: These observations led Michael to the behavioral studies he's doing today.
1: This difference between, on the one hand, describing how parents play with their children and then sort of translating that into recommendations for how they should play that in my sort of for me personally was a big step because once you sort of start helping parents be more effective at playing with their children you become very aware of all the different factors that play into it and it has to do with the parent's temperament and, and how he sees his child and what else is going on in the family. And it has to do with sort of very specific child behaviors that you try to contain and help them regulate. So the step for us to sort of on the one hand measuring how parents are playing to translating that actually into a training program that helps parents to be more effective turned out to be a very big step. And it, it sort of broadened the topic a lot. I started out doing longitudinal research where I essentially tried to describe how parents play and try to describe how children develop and then sort of make connections between the two.
0: These connections are manifested in his latest study.
1: In my more recent work I developed a parent education program where I work with parents and their children weekly for 12 weeks and we come into the home and we bring toys. And we try to help parents to structure these play interactions in ways that promote the child's development of social skills and of language. So what we do is a little bit eclectic. You know, we always come into the home with our toys, which we find important because we help the parents develop a a routine that circles around play to help them practice skills and to help the children become familiar with the situation we talk to the parents about their child's strength and difficulties. We talk to the parents about goals that they have to, for the children. And then we gradually take the parents through a sequence of steps where we help them first monitor their children's attention so that they're aware of where the child is looking. Then we help them to join their child to help them figure out who picks the toys. What do I do if my child is playing repetitively? What do I do if he's playing not at all? And then gradually, once they have coordinated attention, we talk to them, well, what do you actually do with the toys? How do you make sure that we're both playing with the toys in similar ways? How do we talk to the children while we're playing? And then finally, we talk to parents about how to create moments where it's not just the parent responding to the child, but all of the child responding to the parent. So setting things up so the child can imitate us, can use gestures, can join us, can copy our ideas, and so forth. So it's, it's a curriculum that we've developed, help parents think about all these things that come so natural to us when we play with typical developing babies. We do this by videotaping the parents play with the children and videotaping us playing with the children. And then we review these videotapes with the parents to figure out what's working, what's not working, how is the child responding. We do also some coaching where we help the parents and make comments and suggestions while the parent is playing. Or we sit down with the parents and show them specific strategies and model things for them.
0: Michael hopes that with the right play-based intervention, children with autism can learn to develop better social and language skills. The key, however, he says, is early intervention. The
1: processes by which children learn changes over development. So there are these two different developmental processes where during the early years it all has to do with pruning. Mm-hmm. There are too many nerve connections in the brain and the number of connections is gradually reduced. That's how learning happens during the first years. Later on it happens differently with actually different kinds, new connections being made. So, But we sort of assume that this early learning experience that's sort of mediated through elimination of unused connections has to happen early on. So that means that the wiring needs to happen early on. And we're sort of worried that if we don't intervene early, we may, may not be able to implement sort of big changes. And I think the other thing that it means for me is that there's an argument to be made that it, in order to get the brain wired right, we need to help children acquire skills in a similar way than typical developing kids do. We can't just teach children through some arbitrary mechanism like conditioning and things like that. There's an argument to be made to think very carefully about what kind of skills typical developing kids acquire during this early period. What's the sequence of these skills? And what do parents do to help children acquire these skills? Because even though children with autism may sort of need an additional dose of this to really get things started. I think there's an argument to be made that it needs to be in similar ways.
0: While Michael's current interest is play-based intervention, he stresses that treating autism requires a multifaceted approach.
1: I I have to emphasize, you know, playing with your child is not the only thing that parents have to do. It's one piece in in, in parenting. It's a piece that's potentially important, but it's not the only thing. So we see our intervention as a small piece in a compre- comprehensive intervention program for children.
0: For more information on Michael or Jason's research or the Autism Symposium held at Hunter last month, log on to autismsymposium.hunter.cuny.edu. Thanks for listening this week. Check out this season's SNC Girls Night Out series. Get your tickets online at www.nias.org/girlsnightout. Science in the City is a nonprofit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support the Science in the City program today, log on to scienceandthecity.org donate. As always, if you have any feedback for us here at Science in the City, send us an email at scienceandthecity at nias.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.